This podcast contains strong language, details of drug use, violence, recounting of traumatic events and themes which listeners may find upsetting. Today we have Tony Ormond at the bunker, also known as Tony O. Tony's originally from Birkenhead and found himself homeless on the streets of North Wales. He was a victim of county lines and following getting into recovery he's since become an award-winning drug support worker. I've known Tony beforehand and I'm sure there's a good chance many of you in recovery in the North Wales area know Tony. However, today I got to chat with Tony one-on-one and we had a great conversation. I hope you all enjoy listening to mine and Tony's conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. So, hi, I'm here with Tony O. Hi. It's lovely to see you. So, Tony, you, like, have a connection with Marcus and Eternal... How did you, like, know Marcus? How did you and Marcus, like, know each other? So I first met Marcus in 2005. I'd left a 12-step rehab, but went on to work in that 12-step rehab. And Marcus come in as a a resident, and that's how we got to know each other. Um, Ironically, I relapsed or collapsed, should I say, and so did Marcus not not long, you know, after that first experience when we met. And we were both out there doing what we do, which is normally wrecking our lives and wrecking everyone else's life around us. Yeah. Wrecking the community. However, in 2011, I, I finally, you know, clean, cleaned up, sobered up. And a few years later... I had a message from Marcus. So although I was living, working, recovering in Wrexham, I'd had a message that Marcus was in major trouble with heroin in in the Colburn Bay area. So I responded to his his plea for help and I went to see him and he was street homeless at the time and he pleaded with me to help him um, get his life together. And I told him at the time, I said, you know, I'm... I'm not. A, I'm not a magician. I don't conduct black magic. But if he was willing to meet me halfway, then maybe I could do something. He he, he stipulated that he didn't want to um, go on methadone, and that was going to be difficult because um, health services who have prescribing contracts um, like to stabilise people in the first instance. Then. It was methadone. Yeah. And Marcus said he didn't want a secondary addiction, which was, was for a lot of opiate users a lot harder to come off. So from there, um, I cre- we had a plan. I said to Marcus, okay, so you're homeless. You're taking up to 30 bags of heroin a day. That's £300 a day habits. You don't want to go on methadone, but you tell me you're going to start injecting crack soon if we're not careful. Hence, it probably put you in your grave. Yeah. So from there, I, I said to Marcus, every time we speak, can you f- go... Because the good thing about libraries is you can get on the internet and if you've got an email address, you can still communicate with the outside world. And So every time me and Marcus spoke, he would go to the library, send me an email and say further to our conversation today, blah de blah blah So we started to build up a written evidence of where this man's life was. Luckily at the time, I, I sat on a commissioning panel for drug services in North Wales called North Wales Area Planning Board. I was the vice chair and my chairperson at the time on the delivery group was the Assistant Chief Constable Simon Shaw. So after a meeting one day, I just poured my heart out to him on the place of this man in Colwyn Bay that was lost and wow. wanted our help. It's not something you'd normally do. It's not the way you're doing things, but he... He said, okay, um, let's try and do something. So I showed him all the evidence I had on my emails that Marcus had been sending me from a street homeless um, addict, heroin addict in, in Colwyn Bay, that he was sending from a library. And this this evidence start, seemed to tap on, on the Assistant Chief Constable's heartstrings. And we started to make some moves. And Because long story short, Marcus was offered... Um, a detox unit, a residential, to look to start getting physically okay, you know, come off yeah. the stuff he was on. But Marcus also 
and put a caveat next to that and said, you know, he needed something a bit more serious, i.e. a rehab. Yeah. Um, initially, they gave him 12 weeks funding because he was doing so well. And it was in the interest of the public, that, um, especially around cost, um, that this, this person was no longer terrorising our communities and costing um, the crime matrix a lot of money to, yeah. to, to, to pick up the pieces from him. So, you know, if you do, if you do the sums on it, 800 quid a week rehab aligned against, you know, someone that's causing thousands and thousands of pounds and a lot of misery in the community. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, so he got another 12 weeks funding, you know. They had to, when we asked for the other 12 weeks, they went, you can have it, because they, <laughs> <laughs> they knew it was money well spent. Yeah. From there, Marcus, um, he had a dream. He had been involved in some photography, photography and filming projects in the past. Yeah. But he had a dream. Um, he didn't want people telling him how it should be done. He felt as though he could. Um, he had more autonomy if he just created the concept, and that concept was to also help a lot of other people to get into it. Almost create a small army to do the job rather than, you know, one or two people behind the camera. So he created a concept. Ironically, the 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 assistant chief constable at the time was retiring. And he helped Marcus create a charity. And that assistant chief constable is now a trustee of Eternal Media. Wow. Along with some other influ influential filmmakers and what have you. And then it's, it's evolved. It's evolved from there over the last six or seven years. It's really took a life of its own. Um, and all, all born from things that were, were a bit out the normal as well. Yeah. You know. Sometimes we have to treat cases as special and do things a bit differently. And this was one case where we've actually got physical evidence of why sometimes we do things a bit differently. Definitely. That's amazing. So how does it feel for you, like, almost coming home, isn't it? Like, you're coming back here. Like, how does it feel for you to be sitting here now, getting interviewed by me? Yeah, I feel assured. I feel assured yeah. that recovery does work. You know, you know, them decisions we made seven years ago has ended up in this, um, and it's really nice to see that. You know, it's not just Marcus that that loves, lives, breathes, and, and sleeps eternal. That other people are getting involved as well. I've just met a lad downstairs who come from DWP. You know, job centre who's yeah who's now here, and you know, it's just just great to see. It's. Um, Occupation is really important to get up and have a purpose in the day as part of recovery. I hear so many people saying that, oh, I relapsed because I was bored. No, I think you know, there's no excuse for that kind of language no. these days. That was my excuse all the years ago because I didn't have a purpose. But even like coming here and doing bits with Marcus and Eternal, it gives me like a sense of purpose. Mm. So I totally get that. Yeah. So Tony... Like, what is it you do? So I'm, I'm a service manager. I've only been in post for five weeks. I'm a service manager for an organisation that, that deals with criminal justice and substance misuse. Mm -hmm. so, so our service um, is an amazing team, something I've picked up within within a couple of days. I picked up that, you know, there's an amazing team at work to deliver on this contract. The contract sits within the Police and Crime Commissioner's remit, so they're our main commissioner. And from there, we we do a bit of prescribing. So there's a clinic, clinical elements, mainly Bouvidal, which is the new injection. Um, you can either have it a weekly. Um, so it's it's Subutex, buprenorphine in liquid form, and it's um, injected into the body once a month rather than people going to the chemist every day. So one, it ticks a box for people putting themselves at risk with COVID. Yeah. Two, it's got an opioid antagonist within within the drug. So if someone was to have a bad day and use heroin, it just wouldn't work. It wouldn't make them sick. It just wouldn't work. Oh, wow. Um, we've also got a bridging prescribing contract called the wrapping prescribed contract. So no one leaves HMP Berwin now without a script because there used to be a metaphoric hole between custody and community. And it doesn't make sense that a lot of people get interventions in, the, in while they're in custody serving a sentence and then they come out with no script they're just going to res resort back to drugs and crime yeah so we bridge that for 12 weeks until they can be referred on to sms 
We also do drug rehabilitation requirements, which means we need a strong integrity with the magistrates' courts. So we've got workers that go in and negotiate um, community sentences with the magistrates rather than people having to serve a custodial sentence. So it's, it's almost a mutual contract between the law and community. We're like a broker in the middle. Wow. Um, we do give people chances, but we, we've got two elements to our service. That's protection of the person. And just as importantly, protection of the public. So there's only so many chances we can give before we would have to feed that information up to the powers that be and people may be recalled. Yeah. You know, because we have to, we are about giving chances. Yes. We are about resilience and recovery, but there needs to be a line, a, a definitive line of what, what, you know, that can't be crossed. Yeah. Um, we also got, we do alcohol treatment requirements. Um, so that's people... For instance, who go up before the magistrates, they're on the third drink drive and the magistrates thinking, I've got no option today, what's we'll send them down for two years. However, they get some of my staff on the phone and, and see if we can negotiate a community sentence rather than a custodial sentence. And then they would have to engage with us. Some people are on tags and we've got the new alcohol testing tags now. So there's new innovation in terms of it picks up on sweat and if there's any alcohol in the sweat an alarm goes off oh, wow. and they can, they can go back to prison. Um, so we've got a presence in custody. So I've got I've had workers this morning that is doing what's known as a cell sweep. So they go to, um, we've got three main custody suites across um, North Wales, the six counties in North Wales. You know, one of my staff goes in this morning, nine o'clock, hired that sergeant, who's in today? Hello, where's a list? You know, six people in, for instance. Um, and my, my workers looking to try ours. Who's in for what? Oh yeah, you got Betty over here. She's in for for, for this non applicable. Yeah. And you got Bob over here. He's in for five blocks of cheese, six packs of bacon, and um, seven packs of batteries. Probably a good demo for someone who's shoplifting to get enough together for to sell the stuff for yeah. for the next hit. So our worker will go and see them um, just to have a word, wow. see if they need any support. Uh, but we don't really deal with first-time offenders. There's other projects across North Wales that will put some diversionary strategies in place to divert them away from further crime. Yeah, so you do a lot, really, for people, and I suppose you can relate to that because you've been where some of these people have been. Yeah, I've been in the hamster wheel of yeah. services and criminal justice services, yeah. Can you just get like a bit of a brief history on your journey through addiction? Like where it took you and and your alcoholism and brief. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking like because of time and that. Okay, sure. But if you want to hear a bit of like I've heard your story before, I think it's amazing, and I want the viewers to you know. Okay, a so little taste of that. First well. picked up a chemical when I was 11, and that chemical seemed to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. So you know. Before then, I was always feeling less than in, in my class in school. Yeah. Felt quite inadequate. Wasn't the best looking of lads. Quite envious of my mate Teddy because he was a proper blue-eyed, blonde boy. and all. He used to get a lot of attention from the girls. But I had a tight noodle gi ginger perm, big ears, quite pale and loads of freckles. I had it all going on. Really bad self-pity as a kid, like... So do you, I accepted that I wasn't the best looking in, in the class. So what I used to do is I thought, well, if I can't get them attract girls from the way I look, maybe I can attract girls by the way I behave. So I'd got into um, in very exaggerated behaviours in class when I was very young to attract. And it seemed to work. Um, with that came some poor decision-making. And at the age of 11, I took my first chemical. That chemical um, seemed, at the time, to be become my best friend. It wasn't just a crutch. It was more than that. It was something that seemed to fill a massive gaping hole with inside me. Some may call it a hole in the soul. But it seemed initially to plug it more importantly because I was never happy when I was a child aware I was in my life you know I was always wanting to be older I was always wanting to be better um, and I'd do anything to get there 
And because I was behavioural, I used to look at some of these lads that were committing crime and petty crime in the communities, blowing cars up, you know, smashing things up. But I was too scared to do it because of the fear of remorse or the fear of reprisal from parents and authority. But when I started taking chemicals, I was off and running because I couldn't feel any remorse. There was no guilt around anything. I could behave in, it in any way that I wanted and feel nothing. So drugs enabled me to feel like Superman. I could, especially some of the anaesthetizing drugs I was taking, you know, I could actually take gold off, off a dead person's fingers and not feel anything. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the thing about drugs, you could walk around almost, you know, feelingless, emotionless. Yeah. So, yeah, that was 11. By the age of 12 or 13, I'm starting to reap some, some consequences, um, some serious consequences around um, my substance misuse. I was smoking weed in school. I was... Um, I was taking a lot of aerosols, solvents, gas... Um, I got ex expelled from school, kicked out of the school at the age of 15 for violence towards the teacher. Um, it wasn't a violence outburst, it was pride. I'd uh, picked the chair up and I put it over my shoulder and all my, not all my class remember it. Some of my classmates laughed and said, you won't throw that at him. And because they said it, my pride wouldn't allow me to put the chair down, so I threw it at him. <laughs> Um, he ducked and it went through the window and he said, you're out now, son. That's it, you're gone. Which, at the time, you know, I'm full of regrets as an adult, but at the time, I felt, like, um, blessed because of that situation because I could now do what, I, what I'd done best and that was take more drugs. Everything around my life was orientated around drugs and alcohol. Everything, you know, I have some, some peers today who, who say they, they developed addiction issues in the 30s, late 30s, sometimes even 40s. My, I developed addiction issues as, as a child. Um, again, because I love what it done for me as, as, as a human being, that, that lacked in confidence. It lacked a lot of things, really. Yeah. Went to prison at the age of 17 for an offence that I couldn't remember. I was in a drug and drink fuel blackout. Um, I remember when the, the cops opened my hatch and I could tell at the time that they had a, um, because they had a funny smile on the face when they were looking through the hatch and uh, when they opened the door they had holsters on but I still couldn't remember what the offence was for and you know I was on the bus to a remand centre for an offence that I couldn't remember doing wow. uh, all in drink and drug blackout yeah. I walked through my childhood thinking I was a slow learner, but um, I know a lot more than that. I've learnt a lot in my recovery. It's not about um, being a slow learner. I'm not. I'm not. You can't educate me out of anything. I'm just one of them people that will have to go through the experience. Yeah. Yeah. So when I my first rehab when I was twenty-one, which was me manipulating. So I was very manipulative. Me, I was a very manipulative addict. So I knew I was going to go down in 1994. If I got arrested again, I had a number of charges behind me, only only superficial charges, yeah, low level. But I knew if I got, got nicked again, I was I was going down. So um, I didn't I didn't want to do a rattle in prison. There was no methadone in prisons then in, in oh, 1994. God. It was just a straight rattle. It might give you one DF one one eight. That's about it. Um, codeine tablets. So I went and put my name down for rehab and I got it and I just manipulated the work and I hit them with all the right buzzwords like I'm desperate, I'm going to die and blah, blah, blah. And in the end, they got me into a rehab and it was all just a ploy to avoid jail. You know, I'm, I'm quite ashamed today to say that, um, that I blocked bed for people that probably died to get into that bed in the, while they were in the queue. Um, while I was in the rehab, I obviously attended court for the, um, the occurrence offences that I had. And back in the 90s, they had something called the Deferred Sentence Scheme. So the magistrates would just say, OK, I'm going to give you two years, but we're going to defer that sentence to you completing six months in rehab. So what I'd do, I'd complete my six months in the rehab. Um, and I'd leave and relapse, and relapse hard. 
Um, but I'm someone that's, um, I've, done, I've had a lot of rehabs on the state, by the way. I've never paid privately. I was a destitute addict. I, yeah. I, was, I was an addict that was street homeless a lot. I was an addict that um, shared needles a lot. Wow. Even though I had hepatitis C, I um, put myself at huge risk. Yeah. I was an addict that was at out of bins um, a lot. I've lived in squats. I've injected in parts of my body where I didn't think it was possible. Um, I was quite a dirty addict. Um, I never bathed. I had the, the growth on my face, the, the matted hair, the smell to go with it. I've had friends and family that I've looked the other way out of utter humiliation because of the state I was in. There was times where I was under eight stone, and as a six foot lad, that's um, that's thin. Really thin. Um, wow. But I was obsessed with the, with the notion of the next fix. So my belief, and not a, I have to remember, not a, not all chaotic drug users are like me. You know, some people can't give up, given enough a good enough reason for it, and stay stopped. Um, and I always have to remind myself, not everyone's like me who uses chaotically. But I, I do regard, I'm not saying I was the worst addict on the block, but I am in a category of an entrenched, no hope, no hope addict. Yeah. Gone, finished. You know, I was starting to obsess where the, um, where it was, I was going to be found, how long it was going to be before I was found. Was there going to be blue bottles, presents, maggots, what stage of decomposition was it going to be at? What, where about would my mum find out and stuff like that that's where it took me and I used to play this morbid tape in my head every day because I never thought I was getting out of it because I have I have a condition where um, I treat it like an allergy you know if someone's got a peanuts allergy you know they certainly don't go near peanuts Yeah. you can't turn around at a seasonal time of year and go Oh, well, it's Christmas. I'll just have a Brazil nut. Just one. I'll be all right. You know, you're going to have an allergy. So I, I treat uh, my addiction and my recovery the same, really. That once I have one, I just can't stop. I have this in me. There's definitely some type of biological disposition to chemicals. Definitely. I'm not wired the same as, as other people around me. Whether that was... Whether I was wired different before the age of 11 or whether the chemicals eroded some of them wires in my brain, I just don't know. But I do accept that I am very different compared to some of my peers. Um, and that's okay, it's just an acceptance. I have a great life because of it, actually. I haven't had a hangover now in ten and a half years, so, you know. I, Amazing. Um, yeah. Um, but I have this thirst that's never quenched. It's a physical reaction to chemicals coupled with a head that just won't stop obsessing over the next one. It's never satisfied. The only time an addict like me is satisfied when they're using is when they're knocked out. And that's it. There is no relief in using. It just makes you more thirstier for the for the drug. It's 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 ironic because you know, we, we get um parched and thirsty, we have some water, seems to quench the thirst but with drugs it's never satisfied you no. know the <laughs> thirst for drugs can never ever be satisfied with with addicts like me like of my type yeah and i say of my type because not everyone's the same i don't speak for every heavy drug user in, in the in the world i speak for my type of addict who just can't stop yeah strategies will fail people like me you cannot apply an intervention to someone like me you just can't do it. It won't work. No. In fact, it'll make me worse because I'll feel... F it'll just fill me full of shame when it's working for everyone else around me and I'm, like, scratching my head thinking, I am different. And there's another intervention you've tried and it's been... Yeah. So, Tony, how many times have you been, like, through a programme or rather, when did you find fellowship? So you've been to treatment centres before, like you talked about, but when did you find, like the 12 steps or like you know fellowship within was that in the rehab or was that through like no people I think around about 1992 
I got caught selling um, diazepam in a night shelter on the Wirral. And they, 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 they got angry with me and get out you. I was I was that off me head, I didn't even know you were there. Okay, I can remember bits of it like it was the middle of winter, it was about minus six outside and I'm you know, all that rejection stuff, I'm planning on going and have a big one because of this. And as I'm trying to pull the door open, one of the staff members just said, Hold your horses. He said, We'll give you the conditional that discharge. So I went, What's the condition? He said, Well, one of our other staff members is in in fellowship at a at an at an AA meeting. If you go to one meeting with him tonight, we'll let you stay. That's the condition. So I said, just one. And he went, yeah. So, so I remember going to this meeting with him, you know, almost under duress, but it was it was, uh, it was a bit of a verbal contract to keep a roof above me. I had a bit of warmth. And, mm. and I went to this meeting. You could smoke then. There was, it seems to be, it seemed, as, me as a, as a young man, I think it was about 21, 22 at the time. But uh, I walked in this room. They've all got grey hair. There's one, there's my first excuse. A woman shared about bloody losing the kids. Well, I haven't got any. There's my second excuse. <laughs> but in the at the end of that meeting, um, because this, I was reflected on, they were talking about you know some horrific stuff, yeah. going to jail and putting drinking drugs in front of the children, you know, bloody blah, blah, blah. The list went on. But as a, as an arrogant child, I you know I'm in a night shelter for God's sake. Um, I just thought, I ain't like these. And if it was, I'll come back when I'm their age. I've got a load of using in me. The deal I made with myself is I had a lot more misery to come. Yeah. Yeah. Then I, I went into a 12 step. That same homeless shelter sent me to a rehab in 2004, <clears throat> which ironically was a 12 step rehab in, in North Wales. Part of that rehab is we used to get to meetings and stuff. So I had more exposure to. Um, to 12 steps or, or to fellowship should I say um, but I never really done the programme because um, it would have been a waste of time anyway because I hadn't had enough yeah so for me the programme only works for people that have had enough, truly had enough enough pain it's not something you do because it's a good idea you can only do the programme if you have a solid, a solid step one and my step one was utter hopelessness and then obviously in 2010 um, I ended up in North Wales because I was transporting I was transporting quite a lot of drugs up my bum on the train into Colwyn Bay I'd got off the train I'd crouch in the bushes I'd spit all these ounces out into my hand and I'd hand them out to local dealers to go and sell on. Yeah. And I'd wait for the money and then give them more. Yeah. We cuckoo the flat in Colwyn Bay. Um, so I owe North Wales a big amends yeah, for me, wrong, me wrongdoing here. Um, but one aggressive weekend of using, because remember I have a condition that's never satisfied. Yeah. I... I'd done a lot of drugs in that weren't mine. By the Monday morning, I smashed what's known as the graph phone up, which is my direct line to Liverpool. Went and had the stash off and went missing. Ended up just outside Wrexham in hiding till all these drugs were gone and I was half mad. Yeah. Walking around with a big kitchen knife, just psychotic in fear of being found by these lads and I wasn't well. I found a little liberal GP who was handwriting scripts. I, I, said, I just went in, I took my jumper off. It was the middle of winter. I, I took my, my jumper off, I took my T-shirt off and I rock, I rock backwards and forwards with her. It was just acting. Um, and, and I said to her that I, I fled violence in Liverpool. It was a, a threat made on my life. And she got a handwritten script. I was like going back to the 80s. So she said, well, what, what medication did you leave in the house? When you?" So I said, um, well, I was on 40 milligrams of diazepam a day. And she handwrote me a monthly script. 
Oh, I was on three to four hundred milligrams of Largactyl a day as well, and she kept on writing. And I was on twenty mils of Zopiclone, <sighs> and I was on this mils of Metazapine, and I was on this mils of Sertraline, and she wrote me a monthly script and said, "I'll see you next month." Wow. <laughs> so, what happened is I got worse and worse. I was losing days, weeks of my life. I was having like drug orientated blackouts. I can remember going in the chemist. Yeah. I can remember coming out the chemist. But I'd wake up five days later in somewhere strange with strange clothes on, marks and all over me, blood on me, praying to God it was mine. Oh, my but God. But I had five-day amnesia blackouts. It was starting to become scary. Yeah. And I was banging a lot of heroin and cracking to me growing at the same time as well. So I was, I was close to death. But something happened at the end of 2010. I had my third heroin overdose and um, something happened to me. I mean, something shifted in me, not in my head, something deeper, on a deeper level. Something changed and I cried out that I wanted to live, I didn't want to die. There was no drastic blinding light after that, you know, the, the angels didn't sing hallelujah or nothing like that. <laughs> It's only in hindsight to look back and, and see how things did start to work for me since that shift. It, be, it was almost like I, I found, I stumbled across some perspective over my life. And I went to speak to, to people in services. They were reluctant because I'd done that many treatment centres and detoxes and community interventions. They were reluctant because it's cost a lot of money, these places, and uh, but he did, he signed the paper in the end and I went into a, a five-week detox and then when I come out, I've done 90 AA meetings in 90 days. I, more importantly, I got on the 12-step programme, um, which is never complete, by the way. It's something I'll be doing by, for the rest of my life. Yeah. I got a damn good sponsor who, who told me the truth about myself. He looked me in the eye and he says, he's just... You know, it helped me to see the truth. Um, I started to do service in, in AA, like making cups of tea, being there for new people. And that's um, it's something that I've continued to do. I've, I broke a record for working. So I got a job after six weeks of getting clean um, in substance misuse. Yeah. Everyone was telling me it was too soon at the time, but... The people that were telling me I had nice houses and cars. I was on bene on sickness benefit for 20 years. So I did tell them, so I for you. Yeah. And I ain't sick anymore. I might have been sick while I'm whacking all that heroin into my system, but I'm not sick anymore, I'm off it. You know, on paper, this, the powers that be had me down as sick still, but I wasn't sick. So I, I got busy. I put my alarm on for five o'clock most mornings, even if there was nothing to get up for. And I got out there into the world and the, the, the sharks of the employment world started circling and I, I got offered an opportunity. I went for it and I was working after six weeks of being out of detox. Wow. Um, and that's been massive in, in my own recovery, you know, past that occupation stuff. Yeah. Um, with that, um, now, I've, I've caused a lot, of, a lot of managers a lot of headache and heartache because I've never really told the line. But that's been part of the magic, really. Some of the some of the best stuff I've done has been has been off the wall and unconventional. Yeah. Um, I've met a lot of people in McDonald's um, after work. Um, you know, it's a public place. It's got cameras in there. It's safe. Yeah. The amount of people I've helped in McDonald's is just unreal. Just one human being talking to another human being about the pitfalls of life and how to move forward, how to avoid this, what to do for that. And um, it got to a stage where um, I, I was I got sick and tired of of witnessing uh, the housing deficit for people who were trying. We had a we went through a period in Wrexham where a lot of people were finding recovery and they were really trying. But the council were putting them in hostels where everyone was using drugs and they were just relapsing. So we got sick of it. So I, I got a three-bedroomed house and, and I moved one lad in. 
he's now eight years clean and sober. Wow. Um, I took him from the prison, technically, and put him in a room. And I said to him, there is a key for your bedroom door. The day you have to ask me for it means I've failed here to produce an environment of trust, compassion, understanding. You can have your key at any time, but if you ask me for it, I feel like I've failed in what I'm trying to produce here. Then I got another lad for another room. And I say lads because I didn't want to mix it with females, you know, different different type of um, headache. Just yeah. like, just men. <laughs> like a sober house, yeah. A sober house, yeah. But Brilliant. it wasn't big enough, so we got next door. Oh, wow. So at one stage, I had five lads living with me that I was supporting and then still getting up a half eight for my day job and going into work, coming home and supporting them. Um, but we were all working. It was great. We used to have our morning coffee in the back garden talking about recovery. And then the vans would start going out and I'd go out about eight o'clock and we'd do our thing. We'd all meet in the evening and have some tea together. Um, but you're not meant to do stuff like that, remember? <laughs> oh, that sounds brilliant, though. Like, there's no connection, like a connection with it, like another addict, like suffering alcoholic addict like yourself. No. Like, being with other like-minded people. Mm. I was literally just wasting my life away. And then I didn't know, I didn't know anything about like 12 steps or like, I knew that the people like there's addicts and alcoholics like myself, but I never really knew like how deep the bonds and the connection. I didn't mm. know about the big book or anything. All these things that I'm reading and I'm like, that's me. Mm. And like, I really feel like I belong to something being here. Yeah. Even just sitting here now, like, I feel like at ease yeah. with it all. I think it's all down to empathy. Yeah. I can't empathise with diabetics because I've never had diabetes. Yeah. But I've been severely malnourished to the point where I've been sugar crashing. So I can try and, I can still sit there with a diabetic and try and, empathise with what it's like to be a diabetic but the bottom line is I've never been a diabetic but I've got strategies that I could try and empathise with yeah. diabetes so it all goes down to um, it all comes down to empathy definitely another thing like I'm new to this and new to fellowship but I've heard that a relapse with a head full of AA and a belly full of beer is soul destroying on a different level have you ever felt like that? many times yeah yeah, it's true. I subscribe to that. Certain exposures to, con to recovery can be really, really healthy, but yeah. also harmful if you go back to it because there's no drug in the world that will get you away from the fact that you nearly had it in the head. Yeah. There was a solution. And it's almost people kill themselves because of it, because they can't handle the fact that is, you know, you had your hands on the gold and let it go. And they've got all this knowledge up there now. All this knowledge, yeah. There's yeah. no drug in the world that can take away that, that torment. It's, it actually sees people off. People kill themselves because of that. I can, I can, yeah, can drive you mad. Yeah, I can believe that because yeah. in the end, I lost the plot. I don't know about yourself, but it wasn't just like the physical, it was the mental for me. Mm. I was completely lost the plot mm. before I got help. Yeah. So I could only imagine going back out there, knowing all like this, these solutions, the solution to the problem, mm. and just the insanity of just picking it up and yeah. using anyway. Yeah. yeah. Mental. I think that's why so many people collapse. I mean, I'm not not a big believer in in, in the word lapse. Yeah. For me. I know people experience lapses. What is collapse, though? Just for like people listening. What is it? Collapse. So you've got lapse. So for me, I treat it as, as phases. So you've got pre-lapse. That's almost dry drunk syndrome. Yeah, be me. <laughs> when all the thinking and behaviours are there, but not the drink of the drug. Yeah. You're sick, technically, in the way you're behaving. Yeah. Your mind's like, you're sober, but your mind isn't. Yeah. 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 You go and pull a bank job. While you're off drinking drugs. Yeah. That's that's pre-lapse that. Okay. You can't yeah. do stuff like that and expect to get away with it for too long. No. So I would call be a, be certain behaviours in the pre-lapse category. 
Then you'd have a lapse, and lapse would be categorised as someone who's used once against their own will. They didn't want to. It wasn't willful. It was, you know, probably a, a weak moment, a coping, a coping strategy gone wrong. But someone uses once, say, within a week, and then retrieves the strength. A relapse is when there's some cocaine lapses together, but maybe they can pull it back after, yeah. after, after a month, who knows. But a collapse is when all bets are off. Oh. It's, a, it's a collapse of everything that's been built. The foundation gives way. Um, the family trust goes. Um, your money starts to go, your hygiene starts to go, and you just think, that's it now. Wow. This is going to take me where it needs to take me. That's yeah. horrible. <laughs> they say though, don't they? When you pick up like a drink again, it's it doesn't have that progressive downhill. When you pick up again, and you're right back to where you left off. Um. So it talks about it in the AA big book. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Yeah. It depends. For a lot of people, it's quick. Yeah. Very quick. A lot of people say that they don't. They didn't go back to where they, they left off. They went to lower. They reckon rock bottoms get lower. Because you got a you got a further height to yeah to fall from. If that makes sense. Or like them yet? Like you haven't done that yet. I haven't got there yet. Mm. And then they become like. A reality, like yeah. So today, like you know, like what would you say? Are you happy with where you are today in your life? Yeah, yeah. Would you say you've reached like some of your aspirations? Some, some, yeah. I um, I think COVID has made me. I've I've really got to think about. You know, it's like. I, I do fellowship meetings, but it don't go for me. Yeah. Um, I don't go to fellowship to see what fellowship can do for me. I go to fellowship to see what I can do for fellowship. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. That only come in in COVID. Um, during COVID, um, I've recognised that the import. I think isolation and restrictions with with COVID nineteen has enabled me to think about the importance of connection. Um, it's like yesterday I was in work for quarter to eight yesterday morning I finished work I went to pick a friend up out of town and I drove a hundred mile round trip to get to a fellowship meeting didn't get into 11 last night oh. but that's my life <laughs> um, me helping people is not a nine to five thing no might be for a lot of people it's not for me no um, and that's okay for those that want to treat this as a job and, and stuff like that I um you know, I appreciate that. But when you've been to the lion's den and you've managed to get out of it, you just got. For me, I've got something about about me that I can help others get out of that lion's den too. I know the way out. Yeah, I think that's important as well, helping other people. Mm. I think it's like one of the best feelings in the world, like you know, doing something for others, like because. In addiction, like, you're the most selfish bastard going. Yeah. You take anything from anyone. But now it's like just even being able to help people. Hmm. It's, like, more rewarding than, like, all that materialistic shit that, well, I personally hmm. was obsessed with, like, having things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So did the illness manifest in you and any other ways you know like the, with the drink and the drugs because people say well it, I've experienced it you know like not with exercise but like with like food and stuff like that or like for a, for a small period of time online shopping was a little bit of a problem for me um, did you have any like addictions like still have yeah <laughs> Coffee's yeah. one as well, coffee. Yeah, I, I still smoke, so I smoke my head off. Yeah. <clears throat> I drink tons of coffee, only the best stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Level number five. So I drink nice. a pot of that before I come out the house. 
I've got four wardrobes. I've got about 90 pairs of trainees. I've got loads of shoes. About 30 bottles of aftershave. That's got to be a scouse thing, that, Tony. I yeah. love aftershave and trainees. Yeah. But never content. Yeah, I always want more. I acquire something, I think I'm happy with it, and I always want more. So, yeah, it's still there. Uh, manifestations of of my illness, yeah. How do you deal with that feeling, though? You know, like, say if you get something, say even if you work hard for it, something that you want, it's justifiable for why you're getting it, and then you get it. And you, it's there, and then you're like, you just, oh, is that it? Mm. How do you deal with that? Because that's something I struggle with, and I'd love to know. Like, I don't do it all the time, but when I do, like, if I can justify getting something yeah. new, and I'm really happy, and I'm like obs- obsessed, yeah, a little bit. I'd say I was a little bit obsessed with something, and then I'd get it, and then I'm like, I feel really down on myself then, and I'm like well I've got it now now what but then I'll just leave it then and I'll throw myself into you know like doing all creative stuff here or be voluntary at the treatment centre or going to meetings and stuff like I'll throw myself into the stuff I'm meant to be doing but how do you get over that like trying to fix yourself does that ever go away or can can it be managed can it be more manageable like again uh- I wouldn't. I wouldn't generalise. Not everyone's the same. Yeah. And talk about me. I think it's going to be there until the day I take my last breath. But that's just me. I think there's always going to be um, some type of a gaping hole. I think drinking drugs for once plays such a major part of people's lives. You know, you get up, you're thinking about it, you're doing it, you're doing it until you're knocked out. Yeah. If you do that for so long that when they're drinking drugs and not in your life, what is there else to do? Yeah. And that's where we can become fixated on other obsessions like sex, gambling, food. Yeah. Um, well, well, there's, there's tons of stuff. I've actually Googled how many anonymous fellowships out there. There's absolutely tons. <laughs> there's hundreds of anonymous fellowships out there for different things. And it's all related to the same inner void. You know, that people are trying to fixate on certain things. Yeah. They don't have any control. It becomes self-destructive. Um, it causes pain. causes discomfort. Yeah. You know, where we don't want to do it anymore, but we're still doing it. Yeah. blah de blah de blah uh, For me, that's where the programme's useful, because the programme, the 12-step programme, can actually treat some of that in some way. It can actually calm it down. I think um, I know for me I'm a creature of extreme yeah I've kicked the arse out of it I'm not interested there's no there's no middle ground yeah no, no middle Same. ground whatsoever do it do it fucking to the extreme or don't do it at all that's my life um, gotta be the best at everything um, that's another little obsession so yeah the programme allows me to, to acquire some balance Um and again, how I deal with some of my obsessions is to help help people. Yeah. Help others. You know, takes you outside of yourself. That's you know, a good one, yeah, actually helping others. Yeah, my 12th step allows me to, to deal with my, my own obsessions. Good. You can inspire me to do a bit more. <laughs> so, what have you done for your recovery today? Today? Yeah. I've... Um, Fired a few flares off this morning, some people in recovery. Yeah, been in touch with a friend in Sheffield who's in early recovery. Yeah, making plans for my meeting tonight. Nice. So tell who or what is your inspiration? Who? Um, my sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. He's um, not by the fact how long he's been been clean and sober he's, he's 50 years clean and sober my sponsor wow but it's not me inspiration for that it's me inspiration because of the way he lives um bit of a colorful life and um, when he was drinking bit of a boy he's one of the most peaceful um harmonious gentle people you could ever meet so um i follow him really i follow what he does not i don't define his wisdom by what he says but, but by what he does 
you know, he's he, he's an old man, he's a senior citizen, but he does loads of service in AA. He's still humble enough to make newcomers a cup of tea. He washes the dishes, he wipes the tables, and he's my example for how I want to live. So That's brilliant. Do you think you've took bits from him then for your recovery? Like, does your help program help you in your life in general because of things that you've took from him, would you say? Yeah, yeah. I've just watched carefully and I've cut, cut and pasted a lot of what he does into my own life and it seems to work. That's the way to do it? Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. And how has working your programme as a positive effect on your loved ones? Like, you, I've heard you share and you mentioned your son and your mum mm-hmm. you're really close to. Like, yeah. how was you getting sober? How's that? Has a positive effect. Well, it's, it still does. I mean, my mum was having panic attacks. She was on medication. She was on the verge of divorce and everything. Was, um, I'm the oldest of four, and her oldest lad was out there on the battlefield of addiction for 20, 21 years. And um, she literally stood at the curtain for all those years, waiting for me to come back with a handkerchief. Um, so now I'm back. There's, there's no antidepressants. Obviously, dad's died. Um, I've stepped up my support for my mum since. Um, if there's something that needs doing, I'll do it. Um, but there's a softer pillow for my family now. I'm I'm in recovery. They can actually worry about other life things without worrying about me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they don't have to hide things from me anymore. They used to hide a lot from me but in fear of how I was going to react to it. Bad news or... Yeah. So, yeah, there's none of that today. That's brilliant. Well, Tony, thank you for letting us interview you today. It's brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. If you've been affected by any of the topics in this episode, please reach out to a trusted contact or seek a professional for support. So that was the conversation with Tony right there. Tony's extremely passionate about his recovery and helping others. In fact, I didn't realise just how much Tony actually does for the fellowship. He played such a key role in helping Marcus get funding. And it makes me think, would Eternal be here? Like, would we be doing this podcast right now if it wasn't for Tony? I'd like to thank Tony for coming in and sitting down to chat with me. I hope you guys enjoyed mine and Tony's chat. Next time, we have a really special episode lined up for you where we have Dr. Wolf Livingston visit us at the bunker. It's definitely not something to be missed. It's unlike anything any of us at Eternal have ever heard before. You won't want to miss this one. Thanks for listening.